Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 15, verse 24. The way of life is above to the wise, that he may depart from hell beneath. Now just that one verse sets us up for this incredibly important topic. It does not get any more, I'll use the word basic, than this doctrine here, without which nothing else in the New Testament makes sense at all including the rather ubiquitous use of the word Savior. But let me get to that. There was a headline in a newspaper two years ago in December. The headline read this way, A sermon from Joel Osteen on hell? Question mark. Then the headline read, Not likely. This is what the writer, Carrie Kintz, wrote. Looking to hear a sermon from Pastor Joel Osteen on hell? Featured on CBS Sunday morning, Joel Osteen, pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, told reporter Tracy Smith why he won't preach about hell. Quote, people already feel guilty enough. They're not doing what they should, raising their kids. He says, we can all find reasons. So I want them to come to Lakewood or our meetings and be lifted up to say, you know what? I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward. I'm doing better. And I think that motivates you to do better. Now, I could spend quite a bit of time just picking this apart and asking questions such as a person like Socrates would ask. What do you mean by moving forward? What do you mean by doing better compared to what? And we can go through all of this here, but I just use this here as an illustration because it's not just Joel Osteen. If you were to travel the United States of America this morning, if it were possible for you to be in every single church, that dots the landscape from coast to coast, from border to border, the chances of you hearing a message about hell are very, very slim. You already know what type of messages you will hear, which inspires this type of a quotation, people have a hard time. Well, that's true, but it's still not the gospel. What I'm going to preach to you today is the gospel. When I say there's a dearth of biblical literacy, I want to start with, not just include, this doctrine here must be clearly understood, what Jesus taught about hell. Because if we don't understand that, I'm going to say it's impossible to appreciate the cross, songs about the cross, why should we even pray? <clears throat> there's not much motivation to witness, except, and let me say this to you, and I hit this fairly often, we kind of see Jesus has a way to political success. I mean, after all, if everybody has Jesus, we'll have a good government. Do not use Jesus as a means to political gain, to say, this will make America better. Yes, it would, <laughs> no question. But that's not likely, that over 333 million Americans are all gonna accept Christ. However, if we have a third great awakening, and there are a significant number of Christians, we know from reading through the scriptures, like God's destruction of Sodom, that he would spare this country for the sake of his own. In any case, I'm just giving you a strong exhortation. Don't use Jesus as a representative of a political party, because Jesus was not political. He's the savior. Barna Associates, some years ago, and they do surveys about church attendance, everything, dealing with churches. They showed that only 32% of adults see hell as an actual place of torment and suffering where people's souls go after death. Only a third believe that hell is a literal place. And then there's a testimony of a pastor who I just assume to be unknown because there is no name attached to his testimony here. But he said this, 
He said, as a pastor, I was more interested in pleasing my congregation and not my creator himself. So I preached false doctrines. Then they asked the question, why do we church leaders avoid preaching about obedience and turning away from sin to appease our church members? Well, maybe that's a rhetorical question, but I could give you a few answers. Number one, we can make the assumption that many preachers who have a Bible in front of them don't themselves actually believe that hell is a literal place that Jesus said it was. Second, I think is worse. And that is that they believe it's a literal place, but they don't have the courage to be in front of a congregation like yourself, all of you who are looking at me and look you in the face and say, hell is real. How do you know that, preacher? Well, I'll give you some reasons in just a moment, but the most important is because Jesus said so. And so this roughly one-third of people who attend church not believing that hell is a real, literal place, I believe can be laid right here on the pulpit. Billy Graham once said if there was more hell in the pulpit, we'd have less hell in the seats in the pews. Honestly, it is one of the reasons that we have so many church problems. There is no fear of the Lord. Charles Finney is one of the great leaders anyway, the most prominent leader of the Second Great Awakening in the 19th century. He said this, when sinners are careless and stupid and sinking into hell unconcerned, it is time the church should bestir themselves. It is as much the duty of the church to awake as it is for the firemen to awake when a fire breaks out in the night in the great city. That's the gospel. Now, of course, we have all these different verses. For instance, in the New Testament, on living correctly before the Lord. We'll talk about holiness in a few minutes. But they're really ancillary statements to the main statement. That when we come to Christ, we turn from sinning to the cross. So the title of this message is Hell, the Reality and the remedy. This cross makes no sense at all if we don't have it rooted in our hearts that hell is real. That last night while we slept, souls poured into that place that would never get out, ever. And we'll speak about what it's like in just a moment. I have something here to give to you that I want you to really listen to because it does have to do with our foundings here in America. And it also relates to the great burden and responsibility laid upon a preacher. If indeed that preacher has been called from God. In John chapter 1 we read this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. In Jeremiah we read that some just went but they were never called. That's been around for a long time. I have a belief that only God can truly make a preacher. That's my belief. You can go to the Bible school. That's not a bad thing. But only God can call someone to preach the gospel. And this, what you're going to hear today, is the gospel. But I want you to listen. We here in this church here are residents of the state of New York. And I want to bring you back just for a moment for the import of what I'm about to read. To show you how America began. And also to show you once again the great duty and burden that lies on the shoulders of a true preacher. Any true preacher. In the New York State Constitution, which was drafted and ratified, I think, in 1777, that means we were already in the American Revolution. We were already fighting a war when the New York State Constitution was drafted. And you can read through that. It's interesting if you read through it for history's sake and information, of course, uh, viable, reliable information. But in Article 34, there's an interesting part of the New York State Constitution that I want to read to you. Keeping in mind, this is our state, New York. Constitution was drafted and ratified in 1777, and Article 34 says this. 
And whereas the ministers of the gospel are, by their profession, dedicated to the service of God and the care of souls, and ought not to be diverted from the great duties of their function, therefore no minister of the gospel or priest of any denomination whatsoever shall at any time hereafter, under any pretense or description whatever, be eligible to or capable of holding any civil or military office or place within this state. Preachers were forbidden by law to go into politics. Now, I'm not advocating that should be carried out now because things have radically changed. But I am saying this is how we began. That the state of New York, and we went through this in a study here years ago where I have in my library a book that is literally this thick of the original constitutions of the states of the United States. which All of them have something like this in their constitutions. We're going back to the founding of our country. But what I want to impress upon you is that there was a law that said a preacher couldn't be a preacher and a politician because his duty as a preacher was far superior and much more burdensome than to be a politician. I was in a discussion once with a friend of mine who was heavily politically connected, deeply involved in politics, and even at some higher levels. And I just happened to be walking past him and another friend that were in a kind of heated debate about American politics. And then I just got grabbed into the conversation. That wasn't something I wanted to be part of, but my friend there pulled me in. And then he said to me, and he put his finger in my face, and he was 20 years my senior, and he says, now you should be involved in politics. And I said to him, I have a job. I'm a preacher. I know all that. He said, I know that, but you should be in politics. And I said, no, sir, I have a job. And it was only within the space of a week or so, while we were studying our constitutions, I came across this. I didn't know of this when I spoke to him. But you see, the Spirit of the Lord gives you the unction and the knowledge of what's most important. And don't get me wrong, my father's flag, which stands behind the cross, has been there forever. Well, not forever, but for 30 years. I'm a patriot. But this patriot understands that the most important thing is that you're born again. And that you're saved. Because America is not going to save you, but we could, by our prayers and repentance and so forth, save America from the imminent judgment of God. However, it's not the most important thing. And so I'm just pointing out to you for the emphasis that in the state of New York, there was a time where a law says, you're a preacher, yes, I'm a minister, and here's my credentials, my education, or whatever. And then you couldn't run for office, you couldn't serve in politics, or as an officer in the military, and so on, because your job in the pulpit was much too important, we can't afford to lose you. My dad spent 13 years in the Merchant Marines, the veteran of both Korean War and World War II, was in every theater of battle on the South Pacific, North Atlantic, everywhere. And at one point, he wanted to join the Navy. When he went to the Navy, after spending several years at sea already, they said, no, we need you more on those merchant ships. Because if you know your history, you'll know that they were being attacked and sunk more than any other branch of the military service, the exception being the United States Marine Corps. They were sinking them right off our coast. My father wanted to join the Navy. They wouldn't let him. We need you more on the merchant ships. Well, the illustration is the same. At the founding of our country, the state of New York, other states as well, they were saying, we can't afford to have you in politics. We need you in the pulpit. Yeah. But I would register a guess to say there's quite a few we could do without them in the pulpit. We would be better off if they weren't in the pulpit because they're not preaching the gospel. What they're preaching is a matter of examination and trying to figure it out. But the gospel here is that man is lost and doesn't just need to be taught. He needs to be saved. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save, not just to teach. 
Buddha was a teacher. Confucius was a teacher. All of these philosophers, religious leaders were teachers. Jesus is a savior. So we call him savior. We call him Messiah. And why? Because man is and will be for eternity separated from God. And Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. The importance of the pulpit, by the way, has not changed. Things have changed. America has changed. Technology and on and on and on. But three things remain the same. God has not changed. Satan has not changed. And man has not changed. And so the pulpit still becomes the most important place. I told you this before, that I sincerely believe that my job is more important than the President of the United States. And I know many people would lampoon that idea when they think of certain things, but I truly believe that. And why? Because our presidents and all of our elected officials, from mayors and what have you, they deal with temporary things that are going to be temporary, and a true preacher deals with something that is eternal. And we choose where we go, but God offers, and we'll talk about this, God offers us to avoid the inevitable. The fact of the matter is this. Someone just told me just two days ago, and I hear this from time to time. They said, you know, Pastor, when you preach, it's just different. And the people that enjoy say these things. The people that don't enjoy don't say anything, except behind my back. (laughs) And all I ever said to you and to others, and this is the truth, all I do is quote what the Bible says. I try not to become too sophisticated with it. Can I? Sure. And the only person that would understand it would be me. But what is the good of that? To prove I'm smart? No. You make it simple. Obviously, it's a gift and it's a calling. And I'm making it a bit more simple than it actually is. But I'm telling you what the Bible says. Jesus taught about hell. Matthew chapter 25, verses 45 and 46. Jesus said, Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not unto me. Now listen to this illustration, this parable on practical righteousness. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Everlasting is the key word there. There's no way out. You know, as long as you're above ground, no matter how bad your situation is, there's always hope. A crippling disease, something that's truly, truly bad in your life, there's always hope it can change. But when a person dies and goes to hell, there's no more hope. Let me just tell you quickly, without sharing my testimony, I just want to share with you this. From the age 17 to the age 20, for four years, I was allowed to be in another place where I knew there was no release. It was intuitive. It wasn't something I read in a book. It wasn't even something I was so much told. It was an intuitive sense, something that is imparted to you where you couldn't know it otherwise, that I could not escape. And it was dark. And, you know, for those of you who know my testimony, the voices day and night. I've come to believe now a couple of things about this experience. First of all, it happened young in my life, 17 years old, lasted to 20, to be in that condition where I was here before people at the same time in another place, always, 24 hours a day. In that place, it was incredibly dark, and the fright, I've never found a word in any language to describe the fear that attended my life every day for four years until Jesus came. Never found a word that was said, well, this kind of describes it. But what it did for me is this. As I mentioned to you before, it stamped eternity on my eyeballs. I have never lived a single day ever since then in all those almost 50 years now without being reminded of eternity. And I prayed before this message, God, make it real to people. It must become the reality that it is, that Jesus said this place exists. And it's not a metaphor. It's not like hell is, oh, I had a hell of a day. 
That's a metaphoric use of a place for which there is no description, I believe, in any language of how horrible it actually is. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus teaches us not to fear them which can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In Mark chapter 9, I want you to turn with me to that verse there. I want you to see what Jesus said, what he taught on this doctrine, and how serious it is. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus talks about this doctrine of hell, this reality, this place. And he will go on to say some astonishing things that he's also said in other places concerning it as well. In Mark chapter 9, look with me at verse 43. Jesus said, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell. Listen, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. These are the words of Jesus. If a preacher wants to go into his pulpit, and many will around the world, really, but in America today, and discard this, that's on them. But I wouldn't want to be in their place when they have to meet Christ. Because Christ didn't come to make us wealthy and successful. And I want to say this with deep respect. The main message of Christ wasn't even how to make your marriage better. That's part of the gospel. But it's not the major part of the gospel. This is the gospel. Verse 45. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt, which means handicapped, into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. These verses here that Jesus repeats three times is to emphasize the eternity of this place. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not. And the fire is not quenched. For everyone shall be salted with fire. And every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Jesus taught it. Why is the preacher not teaching it? In Matthew chapter 13, verse 50, it says, And they shall be cast into the furnace of fire. And there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. I'm going to mention this now so I don't forget to mention it later. I did a funeral for a young man. He was 17. He was out drinking and, you know, young people, of course, they just do sinful and stupid things. But he was out drinking and I'm sure it never entered his mind that that night he would be taken into eternity. He wrapped himself around the tree. He was dead on impact. The mother was visiting the church. She used to come on Wednesday nights for the Bible study. And she asked me and requested, would I do the funeral? And I said, sure. I did the funeral here in Fonda and they let out the whole high school. And it was just a mob of people. The next day, they had a memorial service at the high school, and I attended that out of respect. And a few of his friends gave up to give testimony, you know, about their friend. After this boy, just a few days earlier, was drunk and wrapped himself around the tree and was killed instantly, these boys were just mocking God and talking about when we see each other in hell, we'll just have a drink and party. And oddly enough, the father, who wasn't a professing Christian, got up and rebuked them on the stage. And he said, we need to be reminded of what the reverend said yesterday. But you see, this is a misconception about hell. Like it's a great group of people and at least you got company. There will be no company in hell. There will be plenty of people, but you'll never meet any one of them. You'll be all by yourself. 
Now, the Bible seems to indicate that hell is right below our feet. That means right now, while I'm preaching, people who presumably have heard this message before are down there right now, and they cannot get out, and they will never get out. How do I know that? Because Jesus said so. With that in mind, even if you thought of it, and some have supposed this as well, that you know, a black hole could be hell. Well, let me just say that there's over 100 billion black holes in the universe, so that it could easily contain one human being and only one. So here's another affliction of rejecting Christ and paying the consequences. And that would be that in hell, you're all alone. You're isolated from everybody else who's also in hell because this place has so much room. Realize in the book of Proverbs, it says that hell is never full. And I'm just pointing out how people try to think of things because hell to them is not real. I don't know that anybody in their right mind could take this seriously and not come to Christ. In any case, this young man who died that day, and I told you before, it's hard for me to do a funeral when I'm not sure where a person is. I really do have a difficult time knowing what to say. So I always talk to the people that are in front of me that are alive and talk to them about their need for Christ. That's what I did that day. These three young men decided to get up and just mock the whole message. Jesus spoke of it. In the book of the Revelation, we read, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This takes us into another place, but it's the same idea. This is the second death. Second Thessalonians 1.9 speaks about those that shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Revelation 20 and verse 10, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. We, I'm just giving you just a few verses. There's hundreds, Old and New Testament, hundreds of verses that deal with this subject. But what should concern us the most is that this is what our Savior taught. Therefore, we have the word Savior, not teacher. And he was a teacher. Jesus didn't come along to teach us. Once again, I'm going to emphasize this. The gospel is not about Jesus teaching us how to be successful. You can get that from almost any other book. And you can be successful in this life and miss God altogether. Jesus said you must be born again. Jesus said you must be saved. And that is the message of the gospel, without which, intellectually, the gospel doesn't make sense. Without the truth of the reality. Now here's something that you need to consider. No matter how much you love your friends and your family and your spouse, your wife, your husband, your children, your grandparents, it doesn't matter. Without Christ, they're not in heaven. That's what Jesus taught. I'm just not in a position, nor am I in a place where I want to contradict Jesus. I'm not going to contradict Jesus. If I was like this other preacher up here who said, I'm here to please you and make you happy, well, I could fill this church over again and again and again, but I never did because I refused to compromise a book I did not write. I'm not compromising it. I'm not going to compromise a book I didn't write. I'm not going to contradict Jesus and say, well, what do you know? The truth is, what do I know? I don't know anything except what he said. And going back just briefly for these four years of when I was young, it cut a cavern in my mind, so to speak, so that everything runs back and forth through this cavern, so that I would never forget that experience that I had so many long years ago. It changed my life literally forever. Tormenting was the word, by the way. I was tormented for four years, nearly constantly for four years, whether I slept or I was awake, whether I was with people or I was alone, I was constantly tormented for four years. Though I didn't have the vision that some people talk about or out-of-body experience either. But I knew I was in a place. I was living in two places at the same time. Very strange. And this place was dark and there were voices and torment and all of this. And this place over here was the world that you're in now. And then one day when Christ came into my heart. Because I, I fell on my knees. 
I can remember it. I can remember the afternoon all alone. It was before I met my wife. I fell on my knees. The fear became so great. I can remember exactly where I was. I can remember the plane going across in the sky, and I begged God, take me out of this place. Take me out of this place. And you know what he did? He did. It's guided my life. See, the fear of the Lord is something good. Why? Well, it's the same as the fear of fire. You know, you know my story with the snowblower, pulling a 250, 300-pound snowblower, and it pulls me off the stairs and smacked me hard on the concrete floor and all that. That taught me a lesson. The snowblower now stays in the garage. It doesn't go down the stairs anymore. <laughs> I pulled the lawnmower over my foot. That wasn't fun either. I had sneakers on. Guess what I never wear cutting the lawn? I never wear sneakers. I wear boots all the time. You see, to be warned about a reality is a demonstration that God loves you. My neighbor is a young girl, and I saw her out there cutting her lawn with flip-flops. I got off my tractor, and I said, you know, can I give you some advice as an older man? Put something on your feet. I told her how I ran. She said, I'm going inside. She put boots on. (laughs) See, that's the gospel. What should be filling up the churches in America is people who have been warned, take the warning seriously, and come to Christ. But here's the thing, and here's why we must pray. You see, I can repeat what the Bible says and give you some illustrations and understanding of key words and so forth, but only the Holy Spirit can make it real. Only the Holy Spirit can make this real to you so that you actually see it, and not necessarily the way I explained it, but that you see it for yourself. And the doctrine of the reality of being separated from God forever in a place that's so indescribably horrible, when you're there with that knowledge, as horrible as it is, knowing you cannot get out, you've been locked up, there's always a hope. You're locked up in hell. There's no hope. Abandon all hope, ye that enter here. The words of Dante in the Inferno. Abandon all hope, ye that enter here. While we're still here, there's always a chance. There's always hope. Once that night or that day, whenever it comes, and that heart beats the last beat, for whatever the reason may be, it could be a drug overdose. It could be from a car accident. It could be a friend of mine just two weeks ago. Died in his sleep. He's only my age. Just died in his sleep. His wife died six months before that. But when that time comes, the reality of hell then becomes a truth known. There are no atheists in hell. They may have left the earth as atheists, but they're no longer atheists. They know the reality and the truth. But what I'm saying is that unless this takes root in your heart, it's not likely that you're going to pursue a holy life. Or you pursue it on your own, as many churches do, and they make up their own rules, and it's not the one that's the character of God. You won't really cling to the cross. It'll be just some religious holiday. But when you have this doctrine rooted in your heart, as I have had all these long years, just about 50 years, there's never a day that is so bad that I don't go back and visit the place I was when I was just in my late teens to say, oh God, it's still not as bad as it could have been. And it stabilizes you. See, the fear of the Lord stabilizes you. It gives you the ability by His grace, by His Spirit, and His anointing to withstand these things because the cross, we cling to it because of what it is. Billy Sunday was a professional baseball player in the late 19th century into the early 20th century. But he gave up professional baseball once he was saved and became the most influential preacher for the first 20 years of the 20th century. And he has many great statements, but this one I think is rather engaging. Billy Sunday once said, hell is the highest reward that the devil can offer you for being a servant of his. It's the highest reward, the best that Satan can say to you, serve me and I'll give you hell. Now what does he promise? All the kingdoms of this world, 
I'll give you riches, I'll give you money, and whatever else entertains people and causes them to want these things. But the truth of it is, the only thing he could really offer you is hell. That's the only thing he could actually truthfully offer you. And it's interesting to note that hell was not created for us. It was not created for men. Matthew 25, 41, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, where is the everlasting again, prepared for the devil and his angels. And so it wasn't prepared for us, it was prepared for Satan. Hell is the complete absence of God. Let me say it to you this way in my own parlance. You like flowers? There's no flowers there. You like clean air? There's no clean air there. Do you like water? At least do you appreciate the need for water? Well, we're going to read right now of a man who begged for water, but couldn't get it. Come with me to Luke chapter 16. And here we see, once again, a description. Keeping in mind, and I reiterate this for emphasis, this is not the teaching of Ray Barnett. This is not the teaching of the time for truth. This is the teaching of Jesus. This is what Jesus taught. In Luke chapter 16, let's begin at verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes. Keep in mind, this is Jesus speaking. Being in torments, seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember. I think one of the greatest torments of hell is memory. The memory of that track, I told you, I had a friend of mine, I gave him a gospel track, I said, here, read this, and he crumbled it up and he handed it back to me, you read it. I said, I already read it. It'll be the memory that it did not have to be this way. I think actually people who are in prison, they must have moments when they say, my life did not have to turn out this way. You be sure of this. Your life is what you chose it to be. Oh, you could blame me, because Pastor Ray, you know, he's the problem for a lot of people. And you could blame the current president, but you're wrong. You made the choices. You choose what Joshua says. You choose this day. Serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Serve the God of this land. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. You choose. And let me say one more time. In a very litigious, blame-oriented society, we're used to blaming somebody else for a choice that we made. In any case, he tells him to remember, verse 25, that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. Let me stop there for a minute and tell you a quick story. I went to visit a man in a psychiatric hospital. He was convinced that he had lost his salvation and that's all he repeated when his wife was there and I got there. There's a great gulf fixed. There's a great gulf fixed. That's all he could repeat. I've heard that that has been said by others as well. Now, I was able to you know, talk to him and reassure him and give him scripture verses. And today, as far as I know, he's doing very, very well. But this reality of torment, of flames, of a gulf being fixed between the righteous in heaven and the unrighteous in hell is something to consider. There's a great gulf fixed, verse 26, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. 
Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send into my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. That's three times that word is used. And Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Let me stop there again and say, well, you know what that just said? They have the writings. Moses wasn't alive any longer. Prophets were gone. They had the book. You know, how often do you open this book? How often? How often do you open this book? I hope so. I hope so. But just keep in mind that the scribes opened it every day too, and they never did what it said. They wrote it, the scribes, self-explanatory term. They wrote the scriptures, but they never did what it said. And so Jesus would constantly have battles with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and saying, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Read the 23rd chapter of Matthew. The most excoriating comments that Jesus ever made were made to his religious leaders. And I think if he were to walk amongst us today physically, it would be the exact same thing. Look at the book of the Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3. How many churches he goes to and he says, you know, this is good and that's good, but I have something against you. The Ephesians, you lost your first love. You're not what you used to be. Now he says, repent or else. Let me say one more time relating to myself. Because I really can't do anything to affect your life. Only the Holy Spirit can do that and yourself with your will. I'm a preacher. It's my obligation to state what the scriptures state. But the decision is yours. I've made my decision. And God blessed me in a very strange way many, many long years ago. Presumably so that I could not forget the lesson. You get locked in that place of darkness. There is no way out. One of the most distressing things I would hear doctors say, we can do nothing to help you. After they had made attempts to help me. But Jesus helped me. That's why we call him Savior. Amen. Let me finish this here. Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, and let me translate, if they don't listen to the written word, not even a miraculous event will change them. Neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. If they don't believe, if people don't believe the Bible, you say, oh God, you know, show them a miracle. Jesus said, it won't work. If they don't hear what the Bible is saying, if they won't read it, if they don't pay attention to it, not even something miraculous will change them, like the resurrection. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. I think you're going to find we are much more dependent on the Holy Spirit than we ever dreamed. I'll point out to you Romans 8 that says, you don't even know how to pray as you should. But we just assume that we know what's on our mind and what's on our heart, and God says, no, no. You need the Holy Spirit to help you to pray because you don't even know how to pray as you are. We don't know what to pray for. I mean, that's just a generalization. You're sick, you pray for healing. Well, that's obvious. I mean, you need a job, you pray for a job. That's obvious too. But what is the highest priority in the world? Is that men would be saved. Men would be saved. Now, let me say this to you. The intellectual objection to the doctrine of hell as taught by Jesus, the apostles, and of course the Old Testament as well, the prophets and so forth. Is this question? Well, if God is a God of love, why would he create a hell? The answer to that question is this. A loving God did not create hell. A holy, just, and righteous God did. If you look through the scriptures, I know many of you have, you will see that the highest attribute accented in the Bible is not God's love, it's his holiness. Isaiah chapter 6 in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. He was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And there were angels about his throne, and they cried, Holy, holy, holy. You see, the problem is that people accent one attribute of God, or maybe just the other. I mean, you can get extremes on both. 
But it wasn't a loving God that created hell or prepared it for Satan and his angels. It was a holy God that created it. And he must be just. And he must be righteous. So therefore, we now understand the love of God. Come with me to John chapter 3, one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. The Pharisees were lawyers, not lawyers as in, if you have a case, I'll represent you. They knew the law, the law of Moses. John chapter 3, Jesus is meeting with one of these Pharisees, Nicodemus by name. He didn't understand what Jesus meant in John 3, 3 about you must be born again. But as the conversation goes on, we begin down at verse 14, where Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that was when Israel was sinning against God. They were being bitten by vipers, snakes. And God told Moses, make a brass snake and put it on a pole. And when it's held up, everybody who looks upon it in faith will be saved. That's what the reference is. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's not God's will that anybody should go to hell. They are, but God in his providence and sovereignty has decided to let man make his own choice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest that they are wrought in God. He said, I didn't come to condemn. I came to save. I came to spare you. A friend of mine who was at one time an internationally best-selling author once said this to me. He said, the only message that is preached less than the doctrine, the message of hell, is the message of heaven. Now think about that. When's the last time you heard an entire message on heaven, the hope to come? Why? Because the preaching that we have today is so temporal, so oriented to either lusts of the flesh, telling you, as we read in the scriptures, they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. See, some people have already determined what they want to hear. They just go find the preacher who's going to tell them and say, I agree with him. Well, first of all, because you agree with him doesn't mean he or you are right. So I would search the scriptures, and I'm telling you, I have never regretted a single day, no matter how difficult life has been, can be, I've never regretted a single day of accepting Jesus as my Savior to save me from this place, from this ultimate horrible reality. But let me just accent this again. It wasn't a loving God that created hell. It was a holy God. And he expresses his love by saying things like this. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Learn of me. Seek me. You'll find rest for your soul. If you really understand the doctrine of hell, when we sing songs about the cross, you can't help but to have the pathos rising up. I ask you frequently, not every week, but frequently, how many of you are feeling stressed? Everybody's hands, we're all feeling stressed. But nothing would compare to the day of leaving your body without Christ. Nothing down here. That's why, again, we read in the scriptures, the Apostle Paul said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's not that far away. How many of you that are older can say, wow, life, it went as quick as the older people who used to tell us how quick it went. 
And we didn't believe them when we were younger. I didn't believe them. I didn't believe a lot of things I heard older people say because they were old. I didn't realize that in the course of events, I'd get old and realize how fast this life goes. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. It's not regular death, everybody dies. It's that second death. It's that place called hell. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The wages of sin. You work, you get paid. Those are called wages. You don't get paid. You have a right to go to your boss and say, listen, I didn't get paid. I worked all week, all month, whatever. I didn't get paid. But when you go to God, you don't want to ask him for what you deserve. Because what he gives us is a gift. The wages of sin is what we deserve. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the gospel. Just a couple of quotations. I'll take you to prayer. Two from C.S. Lewis. He said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Another quote from Lewis. The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded. Jesus uses a parable and he says, we will not have this man to rule over us. Those who go to hell or went to hell said, we want nothing to do with God. And God respected their wish. And now God is not there at all. And there is nothing even remotely good, pleasant, nothing. It's all gone. And the people who said, we want nothing to do with God, nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with the gospel, God respects their decision. And that is the end. I've been your pastor a long time, but I'm telling you today, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. They preach it every single week, but I would have to be an evangelist going from church to church, which I would, and I could. And we move on back and forth on to the doctrines of the Bible, but this is the gospel. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. We don't have a bell here on this building, but allegorically speaking, when the bell is called for prayer on Sunday mornings and Friday evenings and Wednesday evenings, this place should be full of people. He said, Bob, I'm good, I'm saved. But your friends and family and neighbors are not. And if this doctrine isn't truly rooted in your heart, you really won't care. For me, I've always cared. It's the reason I just can't quit. Do I want to quit? I want to quit a lot of things. And the reason I won't is because I know this is true. I know this gospel is true. Richard Baxter, the Puritan preacher, he said this. It comes to my mind before I come to this pulpit every so often. He said, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. However, today let's accent the remedy. I will say to you that your praise and your song will never be superficial if you understand what God has saved you from. Yes. Your prayer life will be fervent. Every night I pray, I have a certain list of people I pray for, and I reserve it for night. It's not exclusively, but that's how I do it. I go through a list of names. God, I thank you now that you're saving, and you're saving. And I don't see evidence in some of the people that I'm praying for. And then I say to God, I don't care what I see and I don't care what I hear. I believe and I refuse to not believe that you are hearing my prayers. And what am I praying for? That they have a successful life? They can get that from Dale Carnegie. I'm praying that they be saved from this. 
You need and I need to pray. We pray for America, but why do we want to save America? That's the question. Not that should we save America, why do we want to save America? I would submit to you that a lot of it is just because of ourselves. Do we really care about it? Look at whatever political party you belong to, that's your business. I have friends of mine all around that belong to opposite parties from me, have different political views, and it never gets in the way. They address me as pastor. They ask me for prayer. And do you know what I say? Well, I can't pray for you because you've got the wrong political ideology. <laughs> I refuse to pray for you. You really think Jesus would say that? Do you really think Jesus would behave the way some people behave on social media? Let me tell you something. There's some verses in here. We better start taking them seriously because that's what got us in trouble in the first place. The hatred, the enmity, the bitterness, the anger. All of this is what got us in trouble because God said, don't do it because those things do not lead to my house. They lead to a different place altogether. People say, well, I'm a good person. I believe that there's many, many roads that go to heaven. Do you think that God knows where he lives? I know where I live, and I'm not God. And if somebody, and it just happened in fact, this last week, where do you live? And I gave him directions, how to get to my house. What if they decide to say, every road leads to Pastor Ray's house? Well, guess what? Every road doesn't lead to my house. Follow the directions. God knows where he lives, and he says this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and you will not come to my house unless you come my way. And we either accept that, well, we reject that. And I'll tell you one option you don't have to negotiate that. Because Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And that's his decision. God knows where he lives. And he knows and he's told us how to get there. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this question. I remember asking this question many, many years ago on the same subject. A man who I knew from our early days of being saved. But he was very irritated with the message. Very, very aggravated. I don't know why he didn't want to hear this message because I remember him as a teacher in our church. At the end of the message, I asked everybody, and he happened to be sitting there visiting, what I'm going to ask you now. Many of you here, I know you, you attend Time for Truth, but are you really saved? Are you sure? Because God knows where he lives. And the instructions are written right here in this map called the Bible. And so you take it out and you read it. Because we hear Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 7, and many shall come to me in that day, and they will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We did many miracles in your name. We did wonderful works in your name. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, then will I say unto them, I never knew you. It's unimaginable to think that Jesus, you go up there in his name and say, I did this in your name and that in your name. And why? Because they only heard the Bible and read it, but they never did it. They never acted on it. And then the opposite is true. We hear, we read, we do Wise man, Jesus said, Matthew 7, same chapter, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. A wise man had built his house upon the rock. Rains, floods, storms, everything comes against it, but it still stands. And in the end, it will still stand. Today, are you saved? Do you really, truly know you're saved? There is nothing more important than what we're about to do right now is to make sure that we have Christ. And while we're bowing our hearts for our own selves, let me say this to you as well. How much do you really care about the souls of other people? I mean, you know, salvation. How often do you pray? I say it one last time, unless this doctrine of hell and the reality takes root in your heart, you're not only liable to deceive yourself, but you're going to deceive others because you're going to make up a gospel that Jesus didn't preach or teach. Are you saved today? Saved? And if so, do you really care about others? 
We don't convert anybody. Keep that in mind. That's between them and the Holy Spirit. We're just messengers. Share our testimonies. Share the Bible. Share what the book says. But we must do our part. Father, today we come to you. We humble our hearts before you. When we come to your cross and receive our forgiveness and start walking beyond the cross towards your house, you call us to live a righteous, just, and holy life. Perfectly we don't do it, and you know that better than we do. But the heart is perfect. It must be because of what you spare us from. People have always laughed at this message from the time Jesus taught it, and the Apostle Paul and John and Matthew and everybody else. And they'll continue to laugh, but that would be tragic. Here today, Father God, cause us to know that we've been spared, that blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And then when we go out and try to fill up our tanks with gas, it won't feel quite as bad as knowing where we could have been and one day would have been if we had not been saved. Not to mention, you already told us how things would end down here. Help us today, God. Let people be born again to receive Christ today if you don't have him in your heart. Say, Jesus, be my Savior. Jesus, be my Lord. Save me from that. Help me to be sure. And let me tell you something. When you are, a peace will come over you. Peace. Now, as we're praying, the care for other people. When you read Matthew 24 on the signs of the times and the end and all that, read 25. It's still one sermon. And every parable, there's three of them. Jesus gives it's on practical righteousness. I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me and so on. Our righteousness must not be superficial. Change our hearts, O God. Make them ever true. Change our hearts, O God. Now think of this line. May I be like you. Now one last thing. We are given the commandment to love God with everything that we have. All the heart, all the soul, all the mind, all the strength. All. Then we're commanded to love one another, which I always told you, I think that's the more difficult part. Love one another. So we need to get rid of all the bitterness and the envy and the anger and the hatred and the uh, quarreling. And he says, be tenderhearted, be merciful. Love God, love one another. If we do this, we will fill all the law. So Father, we close our service as we usually do. I pray that this message would go out and save souls and that we would take this message to others as you lead us in the marketplace, that we could share the message of Christ and get out of this false teaching that the purpose of Christ was to teach us how to be better people or how to be successful people. But rather, he said, I've come to seek and to save lost. Help us, God, to go out and preach the gospel to every creature. And now, God, I ask you to bless my friends who will never know how grateful and glad I am to be here today. I just pray, God, that you would bless them and touch them and help them and strengthen them. And all this today, in Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen with me? Amen.